Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 43. Genesis 43. I'm titling this sermon this morning, A Surprising Reception. A Surprising Reception. Joseph's brothers have already been to Egypt once to get grain for their families so they don't starve in the famine that, that covers all the lands, not only Egypt. But, in that first trip to Egypt, <clears throat> Joseph's, well, it was ten of his brothers, not Benjamin, but his half-brothers, all his half-brothers, uh, encountered a strange Egyptian official who was in charge of all the grain, from whom they must get their food if they were to get it. This Zaphonathpania, as his Egyptian name was called, he spoke to them through an interpreter, did not interact directly, but when he saw them, he was harsh with them. He accused them of being spies, conducting espionage, perhaps for a foreign government. They protested that they were actually, the whole group of them were sons of one man in Canaan. And uh, they were actually 12 brothers, though one was no more. And the other one was, the youngest was with their father in Canaan. They ended up in prison for three days. Suppose they were supposed to decide which one of them to send back to Canaan to bring back their youngest brother and prove they weren't spies. After three days, though, the governor relented to the degree that he said, only one of you has to stay behind. The rest of you can take grain to your households because I do fear God. There is a famine. One of you has to stay with me and the rest of you need to take, need to bring back your youngest brother, Benjamin. If you're ever going to see Simeon again, where if you're ever going to see my face again, if you're ever going to get food from me again. On the way home, and then at home as well, the brothers uh, step by step discovered that they all had their money in their sacks with which they thought they had paid for the grain. So now they feared they would be treated as fleeing thieves as well. When their father Jacob renamed Israel by God, when, when Israel heard all this, he reacted by just falling apart in self-pity and resentment of his sons. And he would not let them take Benjamin from him, even though they were all going to die eventually if he didn't. Of course, we know from the text, this strangely hostile governor was actually their long-lost brother Joseph, whom these ten men had well, nine of them, had sold into slavery 20 years ago. They hadn't recognized him, but he'd recognized them. And though initially it might have looked like revenge, Joseph was not after revenge, but he was testing, carefully testing his brothers to see what kind of men they were 20 years later. It's evident that he wasn't sure how he was ultimately going to interact with them. Should he reveal himself to them? Should he be reconciled to them? Could he be? Had they treated his youngest brother Benjamin like they treated him? Was he still alive? Was there, his father still alive? He needed many questions answered. And most of all, he needed to know what their character was now to see how to deal with the situation. Well, with all that in our memories now, we come to chapter 43 where there will be a surprising reception 
on Joseph's part on a second trip to Egypt. The big idea as we go into the text will be this. As steps of faith are taken, fear turns to hope. As steps of faith are taken, fear turns to hope. Let's look at the account here, break it down a little bit, and then we will come back to apply it more thoroughly. First of all, the account in this text, number 1, verses 1 through 15, we find that Judah, Judah overcomes his father's fears by pledging Benjamin's safety. I'll say that again. Judah overcomes his father's fears by pledging Benjamin's safety. That's verses 1 through 15. And as we break down that section in two, uh, first of all, we see Israel's reluctance and stubborn facts. <laughs> Israel's reluctance and stubborn facts. Let's read verses 1 through 10 to start. Speaking of Joseph's family back in Canaan, it says, Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. <laughs> Pause there. Reuben had already said, Reuben the oldest, No, Dad, we can't go back unless you let us take Benjamin with us. The governor said we will not have an audience with him at all unless we bring Benjamin. And we certainly won't get Simeon back unless we do that. And Judah hadn't done the best job of wording how he would vouch for Benjamin's safety. He said, kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. Oh, great. His dad wants two grandsons dead, too. But in any case, it's evident Jacob did not trust Reuben. Reuben had violated his trust in years past. And Jacob, Israel, said to Reuben, no, Benjamin will not go with you. But here we are again. Time has passed, and so Jacob, acting almost as if he hadn't had these conversations previously, which everyone knew he had, he said, go again, buy us a little food. So, verse 3. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? <laughs> what a question. <clears throat> this is all your fault. Verse 7, they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Meaning we've waited so long, we could have had two more loads of grain from Egypt during this time if we hadn't stalled. 
we're in a bad situation, Dad. Our children, our little ones are going to die. And so are you. So is Benjamin. So are all of us. You have to let him go with me. And he didn't say, kill my two sons. He said, let me bear the blame forever if I don't bring him back. He was willing to risk everything, at least his inheritance and status as a son, at the very least, to save the family from famine. But we see here Israel's reluctance face off against stubborn facts. Um, Derek Kidner says it this way, Israel's querulously negative attitude is very true to life. His scolding was an escape from the decision he dreaded and a comfort to his self-esteem. But in clutching his advantage over those who had wronged him, he was jeopardizing himself and them, including his beloved Benjamin, whom he must lose in order to save. It betrays his self-absorption that he still saw the threat to Benjamin primarily in terms of himself. Why did you treat me so ill? He's not even really thinking about Benjamin, just his own feelings. But, as Israel at the beginning of this chapter is, is not in his best moment, Judah suddenly shines. Judah, the fourth son, Leah's fourth son, after Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Judah steps up. And as Richard Belcher mentions, Judah no longer wants to get rid of the favorite son by selling him, which is what he did with Joseph, but is willing to put his own life on the line for the sake of the favorite son. That's a change. It's a wonderful change. We'll talk more about that later. But when we come to verses 11 through 15, we see Israel's surrender and feeble faith. Israel's surrender and feeble faith. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Uh, Jacob is finally uh, on the right foot again. He is, he is finally taking action. He surrenders to God's providence in the situation and to facts. And he says, reminds us a little bit perhaps of when Jacob had earlier sent ahead lavish gifts to Esau uh, to, to hopefully have a good reception when he met him. Now he's sending ahead a gift to this hostile, so far hostile governor in Egypt. And he, he has a feeble faith, but it's a true faith. 
he turns his gaze back on God and he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and send back your other brother, meaning Simeon and Benjamin. He's, his hope isn't, isn't that solid. He still thinks he might just be bereaved of his sons. But he realizes God, the only one who has all power, he has to do something here special. Or I don't know what we'll do. But we have to throw ourselves on him. That's all we can do. So often, it's the same with us, isn't it? God has to back us into a, an absolute corner before we realize, oh, God Almighty has to work. What else can I do? It's also just interesting, and um, I won't go into all the reasons why, but it seems purposeful that, that the narrative points this out. Andrew Steinman mentions his present included the same aromatic resins from Gilead that the Ishmaelites were taking to Egypt when they bought Joseph. However, Jacob also added honey, pistachios, and almonds. Jacob included several foods in his present, even though the famine was severe and food was scarce. This may be an indication of how desperate he was that his sons make a good impression on the Egyptian lord of the land. So first of all, it's famine, and he's sending... Uh, valuable food, dainties, (laughs) to Egypt. He really wants, he's doing all he can to make a good impression with the Egyptians. But it's also ironic that he's sending some of the same stuff down to Egypt with his sons and with Benjamin uh, that those who had taken Joseph into slavery had had with them. Just a little color there. It's interesting that Jacob, in invoking God's mercy, he calls him God Almighty. And that's a special title that's especially associated in Genesis with the promise of descendants for this family. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's covenant promises of seed, offspring. On those particular occasions when that's the focus, that this name God Almighty shows up prominently. El Shaddai. So it's appropriate as Jacob is asking for God's mercy that all his sons might return to him. Well, then we come to verses 16 through 34. Uh, Again, verses 1 through 15, we saw that Judah overcomes his father's fears by pledging Benjamin's safety. Now, verses 16 through 34, Joseph calms his brother's fears with a warm reception. Joseph calms his brother's fears with a warm reception. Again, we'll break this in two. First of all, verse 16 to the beginning of 23. I just call it money matters before the meal. We'll see what what we mean by that. Money matters before the meal. Let's look at it. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, they're in Egypt now, standing before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house. And slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. He sees Benjamin, and that changes everything. Verse 17. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. What business they must have thought, do we Asian shepherds, uh, we Asiatic shepherds from Canaan, 
what business do we have dining with the ruler of Egypt? This has got to be a trap. <laughs> Uh, Verse 18 again, and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. (laughs) So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. They say, we have, before, whoa, 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 before anything really bad happens here, we got to get this one thing straight. Please understand. Here's the money. We're not thieves. Please Verse 23, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Pause there. Oh, these brothers are scared out of their minds. He's inviting us to his house. What in the world is going on here? He wants to get us off by ourselves so he can assault us, make us his slaves, and he wants our donkeys. As one person observed, there may be a hint here, sort of their naivete. They're they're tent dwellers. They're they're in surroundings they they can't even comprehend. Uh, They're afraid the Egyptians, like some petty clan back in Canaan, want their donkeys. It's, I think there's a little humor there. But uh, this this servant of Joseph's, this steward of his, um, he's in, at least partially, and as much as he needs to be, he's in on Joseph's plan here. And uh, what he says basically is, don't worry about it. Just count that as a gift from God. Yeah, I got your money. He doesn't explain what happened after that, but I got your money. It's paid in full as far as we're concerned. That's the idea. And uh, similar wording is used in other ancient documents from that time and place um, to, to mean, you know, we have no, no claims against you. I received payment in full. Well, then after after they deal with money matters before the meal, then second part of verse 23 through verse 34, we see a swift release and strange treatment. A swift release and strange treatment. The next words in verse 23 are, then he brought Simeon out to them. Just like that. They haven't even had a chance to present the present to the governor yet. You'll see that in a few verses. But just like that, they show up, um, he says, don't worry about the money, and they have Simeon back. Bam. It's as easy as that. This is like whiplash (laughs) from last time they were in Egypt. What is going on? But I'm sure it was a joyful reunion. Simeon had had been there maybe as much as a year or two (laughs) in prison, in custody of some sort. Verse 24. 
And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. They're receiving all the customary courtesies given to guests uh, for themselves and their animals. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Again, Joseph's dreams are being fulfilled. Now all his brothers, all 11, are bowing before him to the ground. Verse 27, and he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. They're going out of their way to be very respectful, very humble before him. Verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. who probably, by the way, been a, a toddler or something, something like that when Joseph had been sold into slavery. Now he's a man. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. <laughs> the brothers are left standing there. The governor just left. Bam. There's tears coming down his face. They might have noticed. They wait a while. Then he comes back. His face is washed up. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Again, pointing out that how out of place they sort of are in this environment. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, meaning they were intentionally seated that way, not by their design. And all, all 11 of them in the exact birth order. And the men looked at one another in amazement. They noticed. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. And that's the end of the chapter. Oh, Joseph's still testing them. He gives the, the great honor of five times as big a helping to the youngest, to, to their father's favorite, to Benjamin. He wants to see if that'll flip a switch in their attitude. If they'll go, if they'll start to grumble, if there's going to be trouble, if they look askance at Benjamin. He knows even in a meal, that stuff can come out, those family dynamics. But that's not what happens. They're just happy to be alive and free. <laughs> they don't know what in the world's going on with all this stuff happening today. But Simeon's back with them. They still have Benjamin. They have money. They, they have the money they expected that they'd have to, to give to prove themselves not thieves. They have a banquet fit for a king, because indeed it is, for the ruler of Egypt. And it's from his own table. He's giving them food from his table. 
They drank and were merry with Benjamin. (laughs) Also, just there's so many interesting things here. Um, It says to eat with the Hebrews would have been an abomination to the Egyptians. That's a strong word. The Egyptians Egyptians wanted nothing to do with these kinds of people uh, eating alongside them. Um, Probably with some ethnic and cultural superiority at work there. Also may have been because the Israelites were shepherds and the Egyptians couldn't stand that. That was an abomination to the Egyptians, herding sheep. Also, the Egypt, the um, um, these sons of Israel uh, would have sacrificed cattle in worship, and the Egyptians didn't do that. Cattle were sacred. You didn't do that. So there's a number of things that could go into this. Um, and this points out, as will again be pointed out later in Genesis, that um, God has a reason for keeping for bringing the, the people of Israel down into Egypt for 400 years. It's easier for them to remain distinct from, from the culture around them. There, there's more differences. It's easier to remain distinct from the Egyptians than from the Canaanites uh, because of thing, cultural things already in place. Well, anyway, uh, remember also, this isn't just a feast in normal times, this is a feast in famine. These brothers have not had a bunch of great food, probably, for a couple of years. Now they come in, and the one who's in charge of food in Egypt is throwing them an, a lavish feast. And they get everything he gets. Stuff's on his table, he gives some to them. Uh, this is quite an array of food. Richard Belcher says, God had used hardship to begin to bring this family together, but here they show their change in character and how they handle the blessing of abundance. Good changes are evidenced here. Now, this is an awkward place to pause the story, but it will be worth it if we notice what's already here. There's already plenty for us to consider, I think, this morning. Remember the big idea. As steps of faith are taken, fear turns to hope. Well, what what is often the opposite of faith? That fear that needs to turn to hope. Fear is often opposed to faith. And uh, wrong priorities, idolatry really, is opposed to faith as well. So as we begin the applications of the text here, First of all, when God confronts your wrong priorities, reject self-pity and repent. Uh, Taking this from from Jacob's situation. When God confronts your wrong priorities, reject self-pity and repent. Jacob had a wrong priority of protecting his favorite son at all costs. Even when he was in danger of losing Benjamin along with everyone else, Jacob just spent far too long wallowing in self-pity. He wouldn't do anything. He just was stuck there. He refused to face up to the devastating effects of his favoritism toward Rachel and her sons. This had been going on for decades. 
But even now, he just wouldn't face it. That he had to give it up. (laughs) He would rather waste time finding fault with his sons for mentioning too many family details. What trifling things to bring up. He's just, you know, it's just a smokescreen. Hiding the fact that he just doesn't want to do what's right here. What's necessary. It's your fault that Simeon is a prisoner in Egypt. And for that matter, Joseph perished years ago when I sent him to you. And now you want Benjamin to die too. That's what he told them. Dad, we're all going to die unless we take Benjamin to Egypt. Seven facts. You know, people, not just people out there, all of us, we people, are really dense when we'd rather not change. I'm that way. You're that way. We're really dense when we don't want to change. Left to our natural stubbornness, we all would rather waste precious time in self-pity and blame-shifting than actually give up our idols. What are your idols? Well, they're just the things that we wrongly stake everything on instead of God, right? We value something so highly that at all costs, we're going to protect that priority in our life. God should be the only ultimate priority in our lives, right? But we put other things in that slot all the time. And we're stubborn about it. Do you find yourself wasting time, maybe, finding someone else to blame for your sin and claiming a victim status? We all do it. People do that, for one thing, when they would rather not humble themselves and ask God for pardon and cleansing and have eternal life. Some have never come to Christ for exactly this reason. Maybe you have such a stubborn habit of boosting your own self-esteem that you won't even be honest with God about yourself. And Christian, how about you? Are you like Jacob? Jacob knew the Lord. He was a true believer. He'd already walked long with God, but his pet sins were stubborn. And he didn't even want to see them as sins. They looked so wholesome to him. What could be wrong with a special affection for the the last reminder of your one true love? Doesn't that just sound so good? What's wrong about love? But even a sincere love can be misdirected and disordered. And it can even be rebellious against God. Even a good love can be out of its place in your life. And there are always others around you who seem to have worse sin problems than you do. Compared to his ten sons, ten of his sons, Jacob looked pretty good. Although, of course, his parenting had a lot to do with how they turned out. But aside from that, he could find plenty of things to gripe at them about instead of dealing with himself. So Christian, reject self-pity and its habit of blame-shifting and repent. I, I dare say this is something that each of us, if we're walking the ways of holiness, we have to do this weekly, maybe daily. It's just 
so fundamental to who we are as sinners, isn't it? Reject self-pity and the blame-shifting it brings and just repent, stone up to your sin and say, okay, I'll let it go. I'll let this wrong priority go. James 4, verses 5 through 8. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Second application. Thinking of Judah now. Regardless of past failures, step out in self-sacrifice now. Regardless of past failures, step out and step out in self-sacrifice now. Do you remember Genesis 37 and 38? Remember who Judah was just a few chapters ago? Judah had been nothing short of wretched. He'd been a sleazebag, to use the technical term. He'd suggested that the brothers sell Joseph into foreign slavery, never to be heard from again, because he wanted to make some money off the brother he hated. (laughs) That was his idea. After that, Genesis 38, Judah struck out on his own, disregarding his father and brothers. He lived like a Canaanite. His best friend was a Canaanite. He married a Canaanite. He had, well, his two oldest sons were wicked. God killed them because they were wicked. After his wife and his two oldest sons died, Judah was caught having slept with the daughter-in-law whose rights he had ignored. Of course, she tricked him into this by pretending to be a prostitute, and he had nothing against going into a prostitute. And when she was first revealed to be pregnant by whoredom, Judah, the hypocrite, was ready to burn her to death. After all that, end of Genesis 38, Judah finally began to confess his unrighteousness. But boy, what a wretch he'd been. God's grace finally got a hold of him, but his track record was ugly. And the scene in Genesis 43 is not long after Judah's great exposure and embarrassment. Not not long after he had had twin boys by his daughter-in-law. Look at the timeline. It's pretty soon after that. Judah is not a man we would single out as the likely leader for the family's good. No way. Judah, you need to take a back seat. Let others handle things. Because you're a failure, man. That's how we would view it, naturally. He's not, certainly not someone we would expect to act in selfless sacrifice now. He'd been a very selfish man. But he steps up. And he pledges himself as Benjamin's security so that the family will escape ruin and starvation. Well, as we said, regardless of past failures, step out in self-sacrifice now. What have you done that makes you think you're not the one to take responsibility now? 
How have you sinned that makes you think God won't bless your efforts ever again? Yes, there are long-term consequences to sin, not denying that. But take encouragement from God's grace in Judah's life. Your sin may have robbed you of many opportunities, but you can still lay down your life for God and his people today. That's something you can do. You can still deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ in his love for others. (laughs) Wherever you find yourself, that's something you can do. And you must do. Judah is a good example of God's grace at work in his life this way. And this isn't just true of sins you did before you were converted, before you were a Christian. It's also true when a believer has failed miserably and publicly as a believer. Think of the Apostle Peter, who denied his Lord three times, just abandoned him as he went to his death. When Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus still had work for him to do. Not only did he forgive him in person, but he had work for him to do. And it was the selfless work of caring for the sheep. Remember John 21, verses 15 through 19, after the resurrection. They've had Jesus, the risen Jesus has appeared to some of his disciples as they were fishing, but Jesus already had fish prepared for breakfast on the shore. He wanted fellowship with them. And verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? (laughs) Before Peter had betrayed him, he had... He had said, even if all these desert you, I'll never deny you. So he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Get back up. Take responsibility again. I have things for you to do. That's the Lord's attitude toward all his people when they sin. Let's go to a third application. When faced with anxiety... Remember that your fears are not omniscient. You don't know everything. So when faced with anxiety, remember that your fears are not omniscient. Jacob had fears because of past experience. He thought Joseph had been devoured, mauled, and bloodily devoured by a wild beast. (laughs) He had the coat to prove it, right? Didn't know that was goat's blood on the coat. 
But Jacob had fears because of past experience. That's why he didn't want to let Benjamin go. That trauma from the past. And Jacob's sons had fears because of past experience and guilt. Remember last chapter, every bad thing that would happen, God must be out to get us because of what we did to Joseph. (laughs) They were scared. But once Jacob gave his fears to God Almighty, as he called him, again, we have to look ahead a little bit in the story, but he would soon learn that Joseph was not just alive, he was Lord of Egypt. He was a capable deliverer for the family. Jacob's eye hadn't seen, his ear hadn't heard, his heart hadn't imagined what God had in store for him just around the corner. His fears didn't know everything. Likewise, Jacob's sons were afraid that this mysterious governor in Egypt would enslave them and take their donkeys. But as they did the right thing, despite their fears... I mean, what else were they going to do? They, they had to say, look, we don't know what the deal is with this money, but here it is. Here we are. Here's our brother Benjamin. As they did the right thing, despite their fears, they encountered unexpected kindness. And soon, there's one more test, as we'll see in the next chapter, but soon they would be reconciled to their long-lost brother Joseph. But remember, in Genesis 43, they had no idea what God was doing at all. It was like a roller coaster of, oh, really bad stuff's happening. Oh, really good stuff's happening. What is this? Up and down. For all they knew, they were in an impossible situation, just suffering abuse from an unreasonable, cruel tyrant, and they thought God was just getting vengeance on them. <laughs> but, friends, your fears are not omniscient, your God is. So, let me state the obvious. Trust him rather than your fears. I don't always do that. I know myself. This sounds good until it's my fear that's being confronted. Trust God rather than your anxiety and fear. As you take steps of faith, fear will turn to hope. That's how this works. We cannot be ruled by our fears. Isaiah eight eleven through 13 For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. You look at these sorts of commands. You look at the story of Joseph and his brothers. You might say, well, but what if I'm dealing with unreasonable people who will treat me unjustly? Uh, Joseph's brothers were just mistaken about him. He was actually a good man. So they actually had nothing to fear. It all worked out. But this is different. I know the people I'm stuck with. I know they're bad people. I know they will treat me unfairly. What about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
But again, the question is really the same. Will you trust the omniscient God or your own fears? Let's turn to 1 Peter 3 together for a moment. 1 Peter 3. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Peter um, deals with this same basic issue of fear, fear of what people will, how people will mistreat me. He deals with it first just in the home, when a wife has a husband who is not a believer, doesn't obey the word, might, might not be a trustworthy good guy. Then, as we'll see later in the chapter, he brings up the same sort of issue in general, when we might have to suffer for righteousness' sake. People out there in the world might mistreat us. First of all, look at First Peter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Don't let that be the thing you're impressing people with. (laughs) But, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You're not all stirred up and in anxiety and angst. Gentle, quiet spirit. Because you have God's peace in your life. Which in God's sight, it says, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and look at this, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That's the issue, Peter says. And of course, we could apply this to any of us in in any of our relationships in some degree. We interact with people not because of our fears, not based on our fears, not driven by them, but because we know the Lord and we have his peace and we can still be Christ-like in the situation. Now jump down to verse 13. Shifting gears a bit to perhaps suffering for Christ publicly in society. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, and here he's adapting what we just read from Isaiah chapter 8. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. As Isaiah said, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And so Peter just adapts that and says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Don't have fear of people or be troubled. I know we took some time parking there, but it's important. 
When faced with anxiety, remember that your fears are not omniscient. Fourth and final point of application. Surrender to the Savior, and you will find unexpected welcome. Surrender to the Savior, and you will find unexpected welcome. Remember again that in the larger story in Genesis, Joseph foreshadows the greater Savior to come. His brothers had to yield to his strange demands despite their misgivings and simply surrender themselves to him. They had to just do what he said, bring their brother Benjamin back, come before him again for food. When they did that, they found themselves welcomed by this sovereign ruler, They were given unexpected wealth. They were free from captivity. They were fed from his table. They feasted on his goodness. And it's the same way with Jesus, just in a much greater context. Surrender to the Savior and you will find unexpected welcome. That's true in conversion and it's true throughout the Christian life. Whether your problem is that you have not come to Jesus at all, done things his way, obeyed the gospel by believing on him for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, reconciliation to God. If that's your problem, you just need to surrender and do what he says. Come to him the way he says. And I promise you, you will be surprised at the grace that meets you when you do that. Surrender your wrong priorities and idols to the Savior. And of course, Christian, that's true of us too, isn't it? As we already said. Surrender your wrong priorities and idols to the Savior. Once again, when you hit a point in your life, you thought you were willing to follow the Lord, His way, but then you hit a snag. Surrender. Surrender your wrong priorities and idols to the Savior. Surrender your fears to the Savior. And you'll get tired of hearing me say this. As steps of faith are taken, you will find that fear turns to hope. Because that faith leads you to the one whose steadfast love casts out fear. That's who our Lord Jesus is. Don't you know Psalm 23? Verses 4 through 6, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy or steadfast love shall follow me, pursue me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jacob and his sons had to learn that it wasn't dark doom that was hunting them down and pursuing them. It was God's goodness and steadfast love. But they had to walk by faith, not by sight. What about you? Let's bow together in prayer.
Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of being in your house today. Not a literal building, but we, the church, are the temple of the living God, the house of God. And you meet with us to again remind us of your promises, of your goodness. Remind us to trust in you and live based upon that trust. So help us, Lord. We are weak and feeble in ourselves, and we can't do this apart from your supernatural grace. But we thank you that you've given us that already. You've given us new natures. You've given us the Holy Spirit who will empower the right affections and actions in us. But we need to consciously surrender to you, not do things our way. Again, Lord, I ask that those who are here but have never, never done things your way, have never listened to the gospel to obey it, to respond in faith, repentant faith, help them to give up today, give up on themselves and simply obey what you say. It's the only path to life, not their good works. Not their own ideas, but reconciliation to you through Jesus Christ. For we who are, who do belong to the Savior already by faith, help us to live out that faith consistently. We're so bad at it in ourselves. Thank you for reminding us of how bad we are at it in our natural state. And yet, thank you for your grace that will keep changing us and that will bring us safe to glory in this path of holiness, in this fight of faith. Help us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. We pray this in his name. Amen.